Hello, we are excited to have you with us today for our panel discussion on public health and racism. I am um, Patience Ruffin, Dr. Patience Ruffin. I currently work at the Becoming Counseling and Wellness, who will be hosting this panel discussion today. Um, I have been practicing in the field of mental health for 13 years now, seems like forever, and I have worked with a very diverse population from addiction to the geriatric population to gender specific issues, but today this particular topic is really held near and dear to my heart. Um, today we're really going to be talking about mental health and racism, and I am excited to have our panel members here today to talk about it and to share their experiences and to really discuss how they feel like we have gotten to the place that we are today. So before we jump in and get started, I really want to have them introduce themselves. So um, we're going to start with Karen, and Karen's going to tell you a little bit about herself, and we'll go from there. Karen? Thanks, patients. Hi, everyone. My name is Karen. Um, I am a licensed clinical professional counselor in both Maryland and Virginia. Um, I'm currently practicing at a private practice uh, called East Towson Psychological Services, which is located in Towson, Maryland. I've been there for about a little over a month and some change. Um, prior to that, though, I have done a lot of outpatient work um, in offsite in home services for about four years and some change. Um, I see a lot of varying clients. Um, I've seen pretty much the lifespan, but the uh, population or symptomology that I work most with are mood disorders, anxiety-related disorders, trauma and stressor-related disorders, some neurodevelopmental disorders, and impulse and behavioral concerns. Awesome. And I'm looking forward to speaking with you guys today. Great. So glad to have you with us today, Karen. And last but definitely not least, we have Brandon. Brandon, would you like to go ahead and introduce yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, welcome, everyone. I'm Brandon Johnson. I've worked in uh, suicide prevention and mental health uh, for around seven years now. So previously, I worked as the director of suicide and violence prevention for the state of Maryland. And now currently, I assist states, tribes, and territories to develop uh, practices for suicide prevention, to develop suicide state plans and to help their uh, community coalitions to um, be able to work in suicide prevention. And I also specialize in suicide among people of color as well as in faith communities. Awesome, got us a little powerhouse team here, so I'm excited. So we're gonna jump right in and get started if that's okay with you all. Um, so, you know, I've been really talking to a lot of my colleagues in the community, and one of the biggest things we've been saying just with the pandemic and, of course, with, you know, the protesting or the racial tension, I really want to call it, that we've been seeing in, I want to say the community, but really the world, um, you know, it's been this, I've never seen, I've never seen the likes of this. I've never seen this before. I've never seen the pandemic. It hasn't been around in a hundred years. I've never seen protests like this, where there's people protesting of all race, age, across the world. You know, we're looking on the news, we see different countries doing Black Lives Matters uh, rallies and protests in March. So, I mean, one question I often get is, well, how do you think we got to this point that the world has decided to come together to have this discussion about race and to advocate for um, equality. So we'll start with you, Karen. How do you think we got here? I think it's a really good question. And, and it's one that I've been thinking of a lot recently as well, given you know the current climate. Um, I think a lot of it, if I, and I tend to look at things in historical context. 
So mm-hmm. if we look at, you know, the historical context and we've seen like movements and we've seen um, outrage and state sanctioned violence and things of the like, what I'm noticing um, now with the air and the energy being different surrounding it is that a lot of what I am seeing is like a feminist, black, queer perspective of like that transformational change. Mm. Um, And when we, you know, start to, you know, make ways within that framework, within that lens, um, we're beginning to like pull in um, comrades and adversaries and and allies and, and things of that nature and really beginning to do not only that grassroots level work, but we're also working on like the systemic work. And it's like a one-two punch, if you will, with the change that we're seeing right now. Um, so not only do we see, you know, black people, we see people of color, we see, you know, um, Caucasian allies. We are seeing everybody mobilized um, for change, and it's 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 been it's been a myriad of emotions, but um, <laughs> most often for me, at least right now, it's it's just inspiring. Mm. Um, but it's definitely not an overnight function of how we got here. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Definitely. What about you, Brandon? How do you think we got here? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, with Karen kind of tackling it from the historical standpoint, I'll, you know, kind of put the focus on on right now and kind of what is in, in the pot and kind of how I think it built upon the historical context. I think right now we're watching everyone go through a global pandemic, right? Like everyone is um, you know, really evaluating life. Uh, people have lost individuals. And we watched how like capitalism and systemic racism even plays a factor into COVID-19, who's disproportionately impacted, even with, you know, African-Americans and American Indians and Alaskan Natives being impacted um, by the deaths more than anybody else. We have Latinx communities who um, by far have more people in the workforce as essential employees. So they they have to be out in this. They have to be at the hospitals. They have to be um, in the thick of things. And I think like everyone has gotten a chance to watch like in the most extreme circumstances, we can see how this has really tiered our society and how people are being um, impacted by that. And so with that being in an issue, like people are, absolutely like seeing how this is is playing out and people are upset people are angry people are hurt and people watched as even as a global pandemic took place um us as black people like even you know couldn't even deal with the death and the things that we were experiencing in our communities we had to get up and galvanize and i think people were just really really upset and so mixed with that historical context we watched these things play over time we were learning more as a society about systemic racism Um, And we've watched how we've gotten here. And I think to even watch it play out in the global pandemic really got people fired up, people energized and people mobilized and people galvanized. And that's what you're seeing right now of people really pushing back, not just against, as Karen said, not just interpersonal racism, but looking at it from a top down level um, of capitalism and institutional racism and how we got here and people are working together to dismantle it. Mm-hmm. I think a thing that we I often hear is, or people's misconception has been that George George Floyd was how we got here. Um, that's a misconception. He is not how we got to this place. This has been built, well, it's been going on, but it has been building for an extended amount of time. Do you believe that it's just people were home and so now they got to see it in front of them and so they cared and George Floyd just happened to be the catalyst for that or do you think it was you know 
you know, reason and season, destined to be, timing just perfect. What do you think kind of just got us to this place? And either one of you can answer that. Okay. <laughs> it's a perfect storm of all of those things, right? So I think given the fact that, you know, the world um, has been hunkered down at home, like we don't, we're already building up that frustration from just being at home. We're not used to our um, access that we typically have. We're not used to doing the day-to-day -day things that we've taken for granted and now see <laughs> um, in this current climate. But then we have this moment where we see um, George Floyd die on screen for that extended period of time. And we're experiencing his death um, some in real time, and then some, you know, when we, you know, see it on screen. And George Floyd is by no means the first person, um, the first black man, the first black woman, um, the first trans person uh, that we've seen die on film. But I think when we compound, you know, the pandemic and our frustrations related to that, and health, and and then seeing on top of that the continued systemic violence against black bodies in the midst of a COVID when we're supposed to be in the house. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's, it's wild and it, it's frustrating. It's an infuriating. So I think with all of this happening right now, it's like the perfect storm for the energy to shift for the change to occur. Mm -hmm. You want to add to that, Brandon? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Karen hit the nail on the head. Like it was the exact perfect storm. And, you know, I think just how, you know, these things play out, it was, during COVID and it was black people just existing. And that's typically how it plays out. Mm -hmm. I think during the time of COVID, there were four trans black trans uh, women deaths. Mm -hmm. There was Breonna Taylor who was sleeping. There was uh, Ahmaud Arbery who was jogging. Mm -hmm. And then there was uh, George Floyd who uh, his murder played out over eight minutes and 46 seconds. So like we're watching these things in real time. We're seeing these stories and you know, I think people during this moment, during during COVID, like watching this all play out, um, I think people just had enough. And I think it does couple with COVID that people did have, like people had time and people were ready and people were, were inspired to do something. Mm -hmm. Okay. And with that, it's, I don't know about you all, but in my practice, it uh, COVID was already increasing calls because there was all this anxiety and stress and worry that was happening. As you were saying, you know, our things that we get to do easily and readily were taken from us. And so people were having a hard time with that and everyone had to develop a new normal. Um, but that brought about some anxiety and that brought about some stress. And so um, we saw some changes in that. And then the protesting started to happen. And then I saw a shift in calls happening there. So Karen, for you specifically, and I'm kind of a more personal because you're in private practice, what were you seeing? Like what kind of calls were coming in? What were your clients saying? How were they experiencing the things that were happening across the world? I think uh, clients are experiencing what we're all experiencing, which is just that myriad of emotions of being exhausted and being infuriated and being frustrated and being afraid and being um, worried about family and friends and, and burying loved ones and things of that nature. Um, specifically within the private practice, interestingly enough, I've seen an influx of um, referrals and um, reaching out from women, um, specifically Black women. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, and when they're um, reaching out to schedule intakes and things like that, they're typically um, referring for anxiety, um, referring for depression, wanting to process um, 
patriarchy and, and systemic racism and, and homophobia and transphobia and all of the isms and the microaggressions that we deal with on a consistent basis. Um, so it's been, it's been wonderful, one, to see them come in and reach out for that access. Um, but I would be remiss to say that it, for me, at least personally, it's been overwhelming because now we have this greater influx and there's only but so many um, black women therapists, mm -hmm. black men therapists and psychologists, they're even rarer. So it's like the demand is extremely high and there's only but, you know, so many of us. Um, so while it's been rewarding work, it's also been a little bit overwhelming to receive the influx. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, you're making referrals left and right here, um, mm -hmm. especially when they're looking for like a psychiatrist of color or something like that. It's definitely been um, a, it's been a difficult and a struggle to get that done. So I totally understand that. And so, Brandon, you're in public health. So tell us about some trends that you've been seeing or some patterns that you've noticed um, coming from even maybe a macro level. Let us what's sure. what have you noticed? Yeah, so I mean, during COVID nineteen, um, there's definitely been um, working with the disaster disaster distress hotline, which really covers you know natural disasters and things of that nature. COVID nineteen falls into that bucket, and so there's been a five hundred percent increase um, of calls specifically uh, to that line during COVID nineteen. And so um, you know, and on top of that, like you have the stressors of um, you know, what's happening with, with the protests and all that other stuff. Um, looking at some crisis text line data, um, looking at that, like there were uh, massive increases in text messages from Black people who were uh, trying to handle grief and loss. So dealing with, we look at these disproportionate numbers, so they're disproportionate deaths. And so they're reaching out specifically on how do they process this and how do they manage this? And one of the things that, um, you know, I've heard from people who work as crisis counselors is that, um, you know, they're getting a lot from people of just balancing. If they lose a loved one, the entire process of grief is so different, even handling the funeral and making arrangements and not being able to have in-person support from family due to COVID. Um, there's just so many things on top of that. And so, um, and they're also seeing on crisis text line data, they're also seeing a 10% increase in uh, black texters um, with using the words protest, discrimination or racism. And so um, a lot of these are trending younger. A lot of their textures are trending younger. And so they're looking at this data um, and, and seeing this and how people are reaching out for help as Karen said, um, you know, really trying to adjust to all of these things that are that are happening. And I think that that's something that really is a part of um, the Black experience um, in this country is that um, there's so many things that you have to deal with and dance around and master all at the same time. Like, and there are things that you have to process on a day-to-day -day basis that, you know, you also other people don't have to do as you're trying to get your day-to-day -day life, you know, try to earn a living and do things that regular people do. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's, you know, a lot of what we're, a lot of what we're experiencing. I know some crisis centers have seen more, um, have seen increases in suicidal ideation, especially from younger people as well. Um, and so really like what we're seeing is the impact of all of these things at, at once. Um, and it's really a difficult situation for people to try to balance all of the different pieces of this at one time. Oh, that's amazing. Are there, are you noticing anything with like, um, 
young black males or older black males? Are there any trends that you've noticed uh, with that population in, uh, specifically? So not in any official data. So mm -hmm. looking at anecdotal data, like there's there's a lot of it. Um, you know, I know I work with uh, young black males in Baltimore City and Baltimore County um, here in Maryland. And so like there's a lot of uncertainty, especially with the adolescents about um, having distance from their friends, not being able to see people mm -hmm. and connect with people. And then there's this big looming decision of what is school going to look like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in the fall and even for those who were supposed to go to college um are trying to figure out what is this going to look like will i even be able to leave i may be home which you know as for any college student if you're like hey i'm a freshman i'm about to get out of here and then boom like you're stuck right. at home yeah. i mean that's life-changing and so yeah. like they're, they're trying to process and unpack that um at the same time that is a transitional point in their lives that mm -hmm. has been greatly impacted by something that no one saw well some public health people saw it coming like, <laughs> I say that, but <laughs> that few people saw it coming, at least in this degree and so people have been you know trying to process that and so um i know personally i've gotten a lot of um of calls from organizations and agencies mm -hmm. um, and even friends that have needed supports for um young black children period um and so like we have gotten that from anecdotal data. I just don't mm -hmm. have mass, okay. uh, macro data to, to share with you on that. Makes sense. I mean, and listening to you say that and being Karen or just nodding, uh, is that, you know, think about first generation, you know, this first child to go to school in, especially in a black home, right? And this is exciting time. And then for that to be stripped away, I'm sure that has brought about a lot of emotional and mental turmoil for them as well. So I totally get that. Huh. Interesting. Thanks so much, Brandon. So, I mean, speaking of this, and we're, you know, talking about, you know, the changes and the shifts that are happening. Um, and one of the things when I think about um, what's happening in our society and looking at the protests, even the rioting and the looting, when I look at all of these things, I find myself trying to explain, um, and even, I guess I could add the pandemic in there too, this whole macro level of things happening, right? We're so, we get, um, I have friends who get uh, racism on a map. I get slavery, I get civil rights. I understand those things. And, um, but then they question, they don't understand when I say I have a daughter, please don't touch her hair. Please don't, uh, you know, <laughs> ask me how I got my hair like that. Like, don't do that. Don't like that. Don't, don't. Um, and so, but that can become exhausting as well, having to justify or explain that over and over again. And so one thing um, I find that I have to help a lot of people understand is the impact of microaggression on um, people of color. It is a thing and it's real. So how would you all um, define microaggression for those who might not understand it and um, give some examples of microaggression um, so we can help those who are listening have a better understanding of what it is. Brandon, we'll start with you, especially from- Sure. Yeah. Um, all lives matter. There's one. <laughs> There's one. <laughs> So, um, so microaggressions are really like verbal or non-verbal communication um, that sends hostile or derogatory messages to um, to black people or people of color. And so one of which, and so like I've even heard like people are starting to even section them down. So like micro invalidations is one, which is like mm -hmm. all lives matter. Um, mm -hmm. Or something like another one that I see a lot um, 
online that people will say in like comment sections is when a black person is, is killed by the police, um, the first thing that they'll say is, well, what did they do? Um, what did they do to do this? Like, what was their criminal history? Like, what were they involved in? Um, if as, as if that gives the police a right to execute a person, yes. um, especially on camera. So like, we look at things like that, um, you know, people saying like, you know, you're pretty for a black girl, mm -hmm. um, you know, stuff like that. Like really that, that sends messages um, of intolerance, of, of hate, of discrimination, of bigotry to a person um, in a way that's supposed to be less hostile. I always like to say that like microaggressions can lead to macro problems. So it's like, you know, we do this over and over again, like we have this in these different arenas that we experience this in, the workplace being one of um, the biggest ones. And so like we have to, you know, try to do our job, do our job better than everyone else around us because of perceptions and things. And then also have to deal with feedback like this and then figure out how we're gonna respond to it and keep our jobs, you know, <laughs> and make sure that we're professional, that we present well, like it creates mm -hmm. this stress um, that we have to carry into basic everyday interactions with people um, that really begin to, uh, to challenge our mental health and to challenge our security in certain positions. Agreed. Karen, you wanna add on to that anything? Sure. Brandon did a really good job of outlining what excuse me, microaggressions are and gave some really good examples. The only thing that I would add, in addition, um, Brandon uh, brought up the micro invalidations. <clears throat> so, and that's a really um, prevalent example of how microaggressions affect um, people at, at large, but Black people specifically. But in addition to that, there are things like um, micro assaults and micro insults. So the micro assaults are those more overt forms of, uh, excuse me, discrimination, and they can manifest in either those verbal or nonverbal attacks, as well as those avoidant behaviors. So an example of that is if, for example, you see a black man walking down the street and a white woman is walking on that same sidewalk, that white woman will uh, purposely cross to the other side of the street. Um, that is an example of a micro assault because we're essentially saying that that black man, without knowing anything about them other than that fact that that is a black man, mm -hmm. that he's dangerous or criminal. Um, another example um, under the umbrella of microaggressions are micro insults. So those are those rude or insensitive behaviors or those statements that degrade a person's race or heritage or identity. So perfect example within um, our Latinx comrades um, with Spanish or Portuguese is their uh, primary language. Mm -hmm one um, of the majority will come up to them and say, speak English mm -hmm. <laughs> or speak good English. Mm -hmm. um, those are examples of uh, micro insults. Um, but I was listening to you two talk about the other uh, examples of microaggressions. And then the one that I've been hearing so much of is, I don't see color. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We're all one race, the yeah. human yeah. race. We all bleed. That is a melting pot. We all bleed red. Yeah, yeah. Those are those color blindness um, types of microaggressions that just really grinds my gears. Um, even the ones where you're an alien to your own land. So it's like, where are you from? Where were you born? You speak English very well. Or my favorite personal one. Um, you sound so eloquent. You sound mm. like a white girl. Mm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. These are all examples of microaggressions that Black people deal with on a daily basis. And we're talking about how that affects our mental health. Well, mm-hmm. those types of microaggressions, they lead to negative affects mm-hmm. or how we view ourselves. They lead to depression. They lead to anxiety. They can lead to trauma and stressor-related disorders because that stuff is being pounded on you on an almost constant and consistent basis. Um, so it definitely has some negative impacts outside of it just being, you know, horribly annoying and <laughs> Very true. And I say often that it becomes this cyclical thing, right? Because you ha- a lot of times there's this, we just talked about disparity in care, right? So, or the lack of trust in, you know, physical or mental health providers. Oh, and so, um, you know, here I am, I have to justify my blackness or explain my blackness to you. I have to present a particular way for you to be comfortable on a daily basis. I'm, you know, this is, I get home, I'm exhausted, I'm tired. So not only does it have a mental effect, it has physical, my high blood pressure, my, you know, whatever else goes along with that. But then I'm also in an area where I'm not getting the level of care that I need. You can look at the research and look at you know, the research for pregnant women or, you know, black people go into the hospital for, you know, to get treated for any kind of physical health issue or medical issue and the level of care that they get. And so what do you say to those who, or what do you think about this whole cyclical issue that continues to happen in the black community where, you know, we need the help, we need the care, um, but we're not getting, we're not able to either get it or we don't trust enough to go get it. Um, what do you say to that? Brandon, you can start us. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a I think it's a real thing. Um, there is, you know, an issue with the things that we that we deal with and and the amount of stress that we deal with in each of these dis- different arenas. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I've been talking about with people is that um, you know, people will talk about racism and like you said, like they'll put it in these really big powerful Things of like you're walking down the street, someone calls you the N word and throws something at you, and it has to be this big, powerful thing. Um, not, you know, taking into consideration that so many different things lead up to this in different arenas from where you work um, to interactions with law enforcement at any period of time. You could be driving home from work, you know, at any experience like that. It can go into, you know, you and your family trying to get a loan to mm. move into a new house or a different area, but for some reason, it's harder for you to get it. You know, you know, because they're, you know, we've outlawed redlining, but it still happens. You can look at mm-hmm. it and see that it still happens. Mm-hmm. And so, so then there's that stress compounded on it. And then historically, the mental health field has had challenges in, in theory in um, the people that they hold up and stand up in the in the field. And so when the person goes to find um, a black therapist, it's difficult to do one or all of them are booked. And so then they go with you and you know try to get therapy with someone who doesn't exhibit humility, doesn't understand you know what to say and what not to say and what those experiences are like. So then when you may go into a therapeutic session, you may then have to explain those things that you wouldn't have to explain to a person of color. Like we could have a whole conversation on microaggressions and we all get it because we've all experienced it. Mm-hmm. Then you'll go in and explain it. Then you have to talk about what happened. And so it's a, it's all these layers that kind of add up and make this this, this cycle, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. um, of, of pain and frustration that I think that, that we experience on a day-to-day basis. And so what I try to tell people about it is that it's not just in one silo. 
it's all connected and it's all connected throughout a lot of the things that we have to experience. Love that. That is so true. Karen, do you have something to add to that? I would just say in addition to all things, um, for me, I'm all about like speaking that truth to that power. And I'm all about like that historical context and that historical lens. And Brandon brought up a really good point of having to acknowledge and, and take accountability for the ways in which historically the mental health field has harmed uh, people of color, specifically um, black people. I mean, for instance, when the APA was founded over 128 years ago, it was founded by a white man and 26 other <laughs> white men. Mm -hmm. And their uh, science, in their construction of test instruments were based in scientific racism. So how are we develop developing these instruments to prove that you are inferior because of the color of your skin? And mm -hmm. it goes to things like um, the phrenology and, and you know the standard intelligence assessments, even things on uh, down to the GRE, like all of these things are not standardized for people of color. And it's interesting to me that the APA recently, I wanna say it was last month maybe, declared racism a pandemic. Racism. And 2020 has been declared a pandemic. <laughs> imagine that. So it's like the APA and to a certain extent the ACA have had to acknowledge while slowly, very, very slowly, I'm talking within the past 40 years up until this month's or last month's declaration of pandemic racism, um, that minorities exist and there's a, a way to approach counseling and there's a way to address their needs um, mm -hmm. within all of these systems. Um, and I think it's important that uh, we get people of color, specifically black people, black women, black men <laughs> into these arenas to offer their insights and to, and to offer uh, support through that multicultural lens. Um, even right now, there's a disparity in um, white uh, psychologists or licensed professionals and African-American um, professionals. And that's as recent as 2018. Um, and it's very disproportionate to, you know, where we're supposed to be in regards to the U.S. Census. So I think in me speaking truth to that type of power, I'm, I'm consistently acknowledging that fact. I'm consistently, you know, working with the systems and, you know, the higher ups and and letting them know where you got it wrong. <laughs> and here are some ways that we can address that, starting by having us in the room, um, having us at the table. And if not, we can create our own table. <laughs> um, in addition to that, I'm always conscious as a black woman of, of speaking and acknowledging the stereotypes that have been placed upon us. So like that strong black woman, um, or that Jezebel or the mammy stereotypes that are still very prevalent in various ways um, in the United States specifically. The strong black woman has been, you know, molded into like this positive thing. And, you know, while resiliency is positive, it also leads to uh, mortality with pregnant mothers. It also <laughs> leads to other medical issues. Um, it also leads to us not getting the help that we need. So speaking to those things and speaking to those frameworks is how I like to um, and strive to in my daily approach to really answer to those um, things and to solve those issues. Mm -hmm. Can I jump in real quick? Real of course quick. you can. Karen broke that down so eloquently. She did. She did then, that was like, the thing I wanted to piggyback on was this whole issue of, of pain. Like we talk about the strong black woman trope in and how basically that has led to 
this thing that happens in Medicare practice a lot, especially with pregnant black women, mm-hmm. that they don't feel pain like other people do. And it's mm-hmm. led to disproportionate rates of black women dying during childbirth and having low birth weight babies because the stress of the actual experience and not being listened to by physicians has led to these adverse outcomes um, in an industrialized country where there is no reason that it should take place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, it just goes to show like just how connected these different things are. But I wanted to jump in with that because that was an uh, awesome point. That is very true, very true. And I think listening to you both, I'm like, <clears throat> what a cross to carry. And also, you know, we can't walk into every room and give this level of, um, information to this you know the depths of this every time we're in a meeting or we're at a conference or we're at a training like we don't have time to go through like the history of racism all the way through with you um but believe it or not i have people who have said their bosses have been calling them into um room you know meetings or uh situations to talk to them since the protests have been taking place um about how they can be, you know, an ally. I say that, I shouldn't do that, but I am. (laughs) And how, you know, they can, you know, make changes within their company or their corporation um, from a system space and things of that sort. And so um, we all have worked or currently work in a place where we uh, have a supervisor, have a supervisor, a manager, where, you know, Um, We might be the only one in the room or we have this opportunity to, you know, help them gain a better understanding about how they can be an ally or make changes um, in a, you know, from their leadership position. And one thing you said, Karen, was they need to have us in the room. Start there. Um, But what are some other things that you would say to a CEO or COO or someone who's calling to see how they can make changes Um, in their company because, yes, we can sit and explain to you the stressors of being Black, but I'm sure we don't have enough time for that. So what were some things or suggestions that you would give to these people who are called, these leaders that are asking for what they can do to become allies or make changes within their companies? I think for me, the first question that I would ask is what their definition of an ally is. I think while it is well-intentioned that a lot of people self-proclaim allyship, the problem is it cannot be self-proclaimed. So allyship, first and foremost, is a lifelong process. Like you're never just going to wake up one day and say, "Ah, I've done the work. I've read the books. I am an ally. No. So you have to, it doesn't work like that. I don't work like that. It's a lifelong process. You have to build those relationships. Those relationships just don't happen out of thin air. They're based on trust. They're based on consistency. They're based mm-hmm. on accountability um, with marginalized populations, with Black people specifically, and people of color um, as, as a whole. Um, so you have to work within those confines, and those efforts need to be recognized. Now, when I say they need to be recognized, you can't just do this. Hey, here's a Black Lives Matter poster. I was at the protest taking a picture. I'm here. That's not how that works. You you have to be willing to have those uncomfortable conversations and address those um, those biases that you may not even know exist. And a lot of well-intentioned allies have a lot of biases that they are not aware of. Um, another thing that I've uh, 
told people that have approached me in those um, instances is that, like we're saying, I am not the expert on the black experience. I'm an expert of Karen's black experience, mm -hmm. but I'm not an expert on the diaspora. So you have to be willing and able to do the work. I cannot hold your hand and, and lead you to uh, books. I can't lead you to to the feminist movements. I can't like you have to be willing and able to to do that work independently mm -hmm. and then come back with some ideas. Now, if we're talking specifically to like supervisors and, you know, the bosses and the CEOs, the powers that be, what does what does your board look like? That's <laughs> is your board diverse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Are there women of color on that board are there men of color what is your what does your leadership look like so i'm talking about like supervisors are there people of color there um what do what does hr look like like what do all of these pockets look like where are we represented if we're not represented why mm. so i think there's a level <laughs> of accountability that needs to take place and and from those answers i can strongly recommend and suggest <laughs> you have to be able to do uh the work um and just not to rely on people of color black women black men black trans women black trans men to give you the answers to everything mm -hmm. very good brandon i'm sure you have something to add to that i mean barely <laughs> but, <laughs> I mean, so i mean to piggyback i mean 100 percent agree like they people have to do the work like we I think a lot of us, you know, have been called into spaces right now to help people do the work. And, you know, we talked about how that also puts on an even more burdensome situation on black people and people of color, because we're, you know, fighting for the things that we've seen. We're dealing with COVID and now we have to go in and train your organization and, and you know, other people that are, you know, allies like coming into the space um, to also help them do the work. And I think part of it is that it is, one is definitely, I agree, it's a lifelong process. Um, it's also about self-discovery. Mm -hmm. You have to understand where you are in this process and you have to meet yourself there. Like looking at like stages of change, like you have to identify where you mm -hmm. are. You have to move yourself um, somewhere else. I think we need to get into anti-racism and not just have the thing of, I'm not racist or jumping with the result of, I don't see color or micro validation, like I don't see color and, you know, and really get into how did I become anti-racist? Like there was this, um, I was having this conversation with someone and they had talked about, it was online and they had talked about, um, you know, like people were seeing these things and I, had, I put up a, a post or something about uh, being anti-racist and the things that we experience and all that. And a person, um, a person of the majority who's not uh, of color, you know, jumped on and said like, yeah, like, you know, no longer will these things be acceptable or that like, I'll, you know, you know, I'll, I'll definitely make sure to jump in and, you know, say something about this and, you know, be an ally. And the thing that made me, you know, that the only thing that I saw was that this person had seen things countless things we don't know how many things mm -hmm. and didn't do anything mm -hmm. and you know it's great that you had that self-discovery in june 2020 but i'm just wondering like how many other situations did you see and let it happen and so for me like it, it has to be changed behavior it has to be addressing biases like it really has to be you know this thing of of making sure that you are not only 
just not adding to it, but you're also working to dismantle things. So I think that had to be a key piece of allyship. Mm, important. So I have a question for you. Do you believe, this is for both of you, but do you believe that um, non-persons of color truly understand what racism is and the effects of racism? And why, um, why or why not? That's a big question. Um, I was, you, if, if I say, if I say a hundred percent, like understand, mm -hmm. then I would probably say no. Mm -hmm. Like there's just, I mean, there's so many innate parts of it that are so hard to explain. Like when you try to break it down to another person, um, that that really like I don't know if if they can 100% identify, um, you know, again, and that's why I use the term cultural humility versus cultural competency. Um, you know, it's one thing to say, like, you know, black people, you know, I know that black people are stressed by racism. It's another thing to know, like, I know and have, you know, understood and beginning to understand the impacts of what it looks like to them on a day-to-day -day basis and i can jump in when necessary to try to assist when i see it or i see it being exacerbated like that, those are two different things to me and so that's why um i got that that term from a colleague of mine that works in indian health service that um has pushed that um you know has pushed that forward and i think it you know it's it's hard for me to say you know if they do or they don't but mm -hmm. i i would lean no but i think having the understanding and being able to express some humility about it and then work so towards helping it to change i think is the key parts of it mm -hmm. karen i would agree with all of those things um a hundred percent same same answer as brandon no i don't um <laughs> Full transparency. Um, I think I think there is a increase in like what that overt racism looks like. So it's like, oh, lynching. Yes, we know that that is an overt form of racism. The KKK, the N word, racial slurs. But to me, that's like the tip of the iceberg with it. So it's like, do you are you able to recognize and understand like those covert um, types of uh, racism? So just a few come to mind, like the school to prison pipeline, uh, make America great again, <laughs> the Confederate flag, um, discriminatory lending, hiring discrimination, um, like that, that pyramid is deep. And there's only but so many at the top. And like, yes, we can overtly see that this is wrong. But do you really understand the experience once you begin to peel back the layers? Um, and I like that that terminology that you use. I'm going to ask you to repeat it, Brandon, because I, I love the humility part mm -hmm. of that. Mm -hmm. um, so you just have to, to be willing to do the work. And then another thing that I would add to the discussion that we're already having, and Brandon spoke a little to it, is Black people, we cannot do this work alone. Absolutely. We need you to use your privilege um, to speak to the systems that know you did not create, but you continue to benefit from them to this day. So I need you to speak to that. Um, it's like the humbly put your money where your mouth is, like be on the line, protect us at that front line like they did um, physically when uh, the Breonna Taylor protests first started, you, you saw what I would consider in that instance to be allyship and that um, white women and white men were putting their bodies <laughs> at the front of the line to protect 
uh, us, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And like, I need to see more of that. So like a deeper understanding, doing that work, humility in all things, and then being able to show up and put that action behind it. Like, let me see what you're gonna do when it comes to systemic racism and state-sanctioned violence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. That's really good. And I do, because I, one of the conversations we were having um, is that we're going to, I'll use my own, Black people that I engage with are tired, right? Because we've been doing this for so long. And so allyship is necessary and we welcome it and we want it, but it, you know, not, there isn't even a but, we do want it. Also, we want you to do your work to understand fully what it is and how, um, because, you know, this is 20 June, we're in what, June? And when the protests start? What was that? Maybe like May, April? So protests for George Floyd were June-ish and okay. we're pushing August. <laughs> okay, and we're pushing August, that's right. And so we were kind of at this point. And so, you know, soon, um, no, I'm going to say soon, but obviously that's not true with the way the numbers are going. But, you know, at some point there is this idea that we won't be in front of our TVs. We won't be home anymore. We won't, um, you know, be glued. No, we'll have other things to do to become distracted. So how do you think we, and when I say we, I mean we as um, African-Americans, as Black people, we as people of color, we as those who want to be allies, how do we keep this fire burning? How do we keep this at the forefront? How do we keep this on the news, on repeat like it's been? How do we keep this level of energy going? Because um, again, as we started this, I just haven't seen the likes of this. And so how do we keep this going? Um, go ahead, Karen. Um, so the first thing for me, and I'm thinking of a mentor um, from school, specifically to, to Black people, right? Because all those things that you said are true. Like we're doing the work, we're also tired. We also have other things um, going on um, in our lives. So the thing that was really, um, I guess, impressed upon me was it's okay to hand the baton over for, to your sister, to your brother, to your comrade and, and, and rest and mm -hmm. take the time that you need to refill your energy, to, to refill your cup. My biggest thing in, in life and, and with clients is we can't keep pouring from an empty cup because it does you no good and it doesn't do anybody else any good. Mm. So I really um, valued her, her nugget of taking that time to rest and trusting that your comrade, your brother, your sister, your ally is doing the work while you're um, recharging. And then when you're ready, come on back, tag yourself back in and continue doing uh, the work. So that's the thing that's, that's really uh, been moving me the past few months and i think in another regard you know in keeping the process up i actually have noticed a decrease in the um visibility of the protests but that doesn't mean that they're not happening so the process is st still very much present uh within the united states um and i think it's important that i keep that in mind for me specifically because just because i can't see it doesn't mean that it, it's not happening Mm -hmm. So there's still there's still hope and there's still the presence that we are doing the groundwork that needs um, to be done in order for change to occur. With that being said, you know, protesting isn't for everybody. It's not everybody's ministry, but there are other things that you can do 
um, within that fight. So whether it's, you know, uh, tying up those phones in the state mm-hmm. capitol or mm-hmm. writing letters or, or raising funds, even if it's just uh, passing out water, passing out snacks to those who are um, on the, I guess, like the front lines of the movement, all of those things matter. Um, so if we keep that in mind and, you know, keep, you know, applying pressure, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, think, mm-hmm. uh, I think we're going to be in a good space. The energy does feel different this time around. So I'm excited um, and mobilized to see what we do. Mm-hmm. Agreed. What about you, Brandon? Um, everything that, that Karen said, and I think Karen was actually talking to me when she talked about like that subbing in of like when you're tired, like to to have someone else mm-hmm. um, work. I mean, it's it's really critical. I'm not good at doing it, but it's really <laughs> critical um, to to us as a people to be able to keep this um, momentum up. But I mean, I certainly think that um, a part of it too, like you know, to jump, piggybacking off of what Karen said, is the lane work. Like I tell people. If we all, you know, know the lanes that we're really good at, that we have time for, that we have energy for, knowledge of, have a passion for, like work aggressively in that. Like, you know, us on this call, mental health is our lane. Like this is where we thrive. This is where we've been trained. This is where we have personal experience. Um, and so this is where we 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 try to battle. Like it is a battle to dismantle uh, systemic racism in mental health and in therapy, like you all being direct service um, and in public health programs, which is my lane, like they, they historically have had challenges in this. Um, and then also being able to educate other people on how to take care of their mental health. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have friends that are on, you know, the front lines of this that are going out that are speaking about this and putting themselves um, in danger, quite frankly, like as they go out and, and battle this on the streets. And so it's important for me to just make sure to check in with them and just say, like, are you all right? You know, do you need to stay home for this one? Like, are you OK? Like, you know, you've you've gone out pretty late, you know, at night. Like, are you are you OK? Are you are you safe? Are you making sure that you're protected when you go out? Like those kind of things are are important as well. And I think if each one of us does that, I think we'll we'll be in position to keep the momentum going. And I think that there is, there's just so much drive right now, I think, to dismantle these things um, in totality and not be acceptive of the small pieces of things that are coming out, like the NFL singing, lift every voice and sing mm-hmm. on all the games in week one. Those mm-hmm. kind of things, I think. Those kind of things. Those kind of things. I think like us not being acceptive of the pandering I think mm-hmm. it really started to shift things too because we're like, that's cool and that's cute, but there are more stuff on the table that we need to discuss. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and it's really been encouraging to see those things. I think it will, I think it'll continue. Agreed. Um, Karen, were you going to say something? Um, I love everything about what you just said. It just made me think of, um, and you know, charges to the head, not the heart, because I can't remember uh, this woman's name, but she played for uh, the WNBA, because she's taking a break to to address some of these things. Maya um, Moore. Was, say it again. Maya Moore. Was she on Don Lemon tonight? I don't know. It sounds know. familiar. Criminal justice work. Right I'm gonna now. look it up. I'm gonna look yeah. it up. Um, you'll have it later. <laughs> but <laughs> she was saying to Don Lemon on CNN tonight, she said the pandering, that's crumbs. <laughs> That's, she said, that's cute. That's nice. I love that you're, you know, writing Black Lives Matter all over the streets. I get it. It's nice um, and timely and poignant, but they're crumbs. Like, I want mm-hmm. the whole plate. 
So like, you're not just gonna give me these crumbs. You're not just gonna say, oh, let's make Juneteenth a holiday uh, where everybody's gonna get off now. <laughs> um, we're not just gonna accept the words on the street and not, you know, the the actions um, that we're putting forth. So I just, it just made me, excuse me, it made me think of that moment on scene. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I, I liked what you said. Very true. I love the two, the part, the lanes. I think that's so important for us to recognize that, you know, you might be not be a protester, but what is your lane? Identify that lane and do that, do your work in that area, which I've had to do a lot of directing with a lot of my clients of kind of like, okay, don't feel guilt and shame because you're not out there protesting, but what is it that you can do and helping them to identify that as they are um, seeking out mental health treatment. So with that, and I can't like let us end because like Brandon said, mental health is our thing. And so what um, words or advice or things that you would want people who might be listening to be aware of about themselves where they might need to seek out help or get some support? Like what are some things that they should be paying attention to a little closely because there's honestly there is a lot going on um across the world and so what are some things that you would say to um you know my heart is you know black people because i you know to, to get them into therapy has been the struggle so what are some <laughs> signs and symptoms some things that you would you know encourage them to pay attention to to be aware of um to seek out or maybe even with their kids or with their loved ones with their older adults like what are some things that you would say hey i know you might be watching this this might be going on with you pay attention to this and seek out help if you need it what are some things that you would encourage them to pay attention to um with them um, emotionally physically mentally you just whatever you feel near and dear to you, uh, say so we'll start with you brandon um, so I, I think uh, first and foremost, like especially with, um, you know, being in, in suicide prevention, I think the hopelessness um, is is a big thing. Um, when you feel that sense of dread, like to get up and to um, be engaged and to, you know, go to work or seeing that in your children, you know, if you're understanding this, um, you know, if you're seeing like this strong sense of fear that inhibits you from doing things that you generally would like, I think that's another thing to to watch out for. Um, you know, especially with 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 kids. Um, you know, is another thing um, as well. And just being able to have conversations with people to check in. So check in with other people. Check in with yourself. Um, one thing that one of my friends. Um, you know, kind of has been doing that kind of led me to do it is instead of like asking people like, how are you doing? Like, just say like, what, what three emotions did you feel the most today? Like where, like, you know, and it causes you to pause and think because when he first asked me, I was like, I don't know. And then I really had to think about it. And I was like, yeah. I really felt overwhelmed today. Like one of the ones that I put out was being overwhelmed. And so like checking in, doing that introspection, like really taking your time to um, tell you how you're feeling and also listen to your physical signs as well because a lot of you know they are connected our, our body is connected and it is a machine and it's very unique in how it operates and so if we're feeling um anxious or depressed we may be more tired than normal we may be suffering from chronic headaches um we may have you know physical exhaustion um you know those are you know accelerated heart rates is another one like we we may be getting those things and i think that checking in with your entire body you know and, and really seeing like we're um, where that is, is, is important. And so I would, 
you know, have people, you know, I think during this time, it's important for every black person to have some therapist or someone that they can, you know, talk to or a trusted friend if they can't find one, um, you know, to be able to connect and have like crisis text line on your phone or the uh, National Suicide Prevention um, Lifeline and those things, you know, just to have them on handy. And you don't have to be in a, a state of active, you know, suicide to be able to reach out for them. And I think that's a big myth that some people have. And I think just having those things handy can definitely make a big difference. Awesome. Thanks, Brandon. What about you, Karen? In addition to what Brandon said, I would, Brandon mentioned a lot about the connection between your mental health and your, phys your physical health, um, which I agree completely with. So, for example, if you are feeling that tightness in your chest, what does it feel like? Is it sharp? Is it heavy? Um, have you been experiencing crying spells more often? If so, how, how long, like what's the duration? How many days a week are you crying? How many times a day are you experiencing those spells? Are you having that sense of helplessness, that sense of hopelessness that Brandon spoke of? Are you sleeping a lot more than usual? Are you sleeping a lot less than usual? How, how long has that been occurring? Just really doing that introspection to check in on yourself. Um, and in addition to that, um, the changes in appetite. Are you overeating? Are you undereating? What are the emotions attached to that um, over or undereating? Are there feelings of guilt there maybe? Um, are you trying to suppress some sort of anxiety or, or feed something? What is it? And then in addition to that, I would also throw into Brandon's like, what three emotions are you experiencing? I would add on to that, like some scaling questions. So like on a scale of one to 10, if you're telling me that you feel overwhelmed on that on that scale of one to 10, 10 being the most overwhelmed, I can't, you know, manage. Um, and that zero, no overwhelmed at all. It's great and peachy. Where do you fall on that line? Mm. Um, and then finally, just to uh, add on uh, to what Brandon was saying, just having those resources available at the ready and a good support system, that's super important, especially in the time of uh, the pandemic, because we're not able to interact in the ways that we're used to. So just making sure that you're, um, keeping up with your social supports. And if you're not, do some introspection surrounding that. What's that about? Are you isolating or is it really just the, the pandemic outside and it's not safe to do so? So just keeping in mind all of those things, um, I think would be a, a good help. Amazing. Guys, I appreciate you two so very much. I thank you for your participation today. This is one of my favorite topics. So if you couldn't tell. Um, so I just appreciate you both taking the time out of your day. I know you both are very busy, but this is such an important topic. And I think something that we really need to talk to our community and all communities about. So thank you once again. We appreciate the audience for being a part of it today and for you all who um, are watching this to participate with us. And so we look forward to maybe having an opportunity to do this again. And we hope that you got something today to help you either gain a better understanding about yourself or those that you engage with. And of course, as we said before, reach out to somebody if you need some help regarding your mental or emotional health. So thank you. Thank you, panel members again. Everyone have a great day.